0: Welcome to the Criterion Chat, a podcast about cinema and the Criterion Collection. I'm Matt Peterson, joined by Nate Myers. Move over, Bergman. It's time for another master of the cinema, Michael Bay. In the 1996 action classic, The Rock, Nicolas Cage plays the subtly named Stanley Goodspeed, a chemical weapons expert reluctantly plucked from his penthouse to face off against Brigadier General Frank Hummel, played with steely precision by Ed Harris. Hummel has taken a group of tourists hostage on Alcatraz, aiming nerve-gas-laden rockets at San Francisco in an effort to avenge the deaths of his comrades, forgotten in battle by what he sees as an unjust government. Goodspeed needs help, however, from the likes of a former British SAS operative named Mason, riding away in his own prison to protect state secrets. Sean Connery brings his history as another British agent into new territory, Along with a sharp new haircut. One seasoned and one terrified, reluctant heroes Mason and Goodspeed launch a rescue op and face off against a squad of rabid Marines keen to seek and destroy. Supported by staples like Philip Baker Hall and James Cameron vet Michael Bean, Bay's film is the picture of Hollywood gloss and slickly produced action. Listen to a couple of losers whining about Michael Bay's best as we welcome you to The Rock. Uh, here we are tackling uh, the rock for, for a second time, so uh, another apology to our, our listeners. Our first recording of this um, had some technical difficulties with the, the track, so um, unfortunately our schedules didn't allow us to re-record till now, so we'll uh, hopefully be as eloquent or not as eloquent as we were before. Uh, we'll start with uh, just a discussion on action movies in general. So, you know, looking at The Rock as, as an example of, you know, I think a successful action film, in my opinion, uh, what is it for you, Nate, that makes an action film work or not work?
1: I'll first just apologize as well for the technical difficulties. It was on my end, so... I take full responsibility. My track did not record correctly, and therefore we weren't able to get our podcast out as scheduled for the start of the month. But hopefully coming at this a second time, we'll be able to do even better than we did on the initial recording. That question about the action film, I think action movies are a necessary part of cinema. They've always been there, and I think they're an important part of movies. So you know, I I have no sort of condescension towards them. I have no thought that they somehow are lesser kinds of film than others. But naturally, because of an action film, you maybe don't explore themes the same way as you would in a straight drama. You have to consider it more entertainment-based, perhaps, as its primary focus, than substance-based. But a good action film can obviously accomplish both, and there are good action films that do accomplish both, that have ideas to them, and are able to use the action as a way of serving those ideas. Uh, the Rock is, I think, a perfect example of, of a 1990s action movie. It might be uh, one of the quintessential examples of that era in action films. It certainly has some ideas in it. It's nothing profound. We're not dealing with Shakespeare, but it is expertly made, and it is uh, uh, an example of how movies, I think, really can appeal to our senses and that's maybe the best way to look at an action film is it's a film that operates on our senses and is able to uh, stimulate them in such a way as to deliver a thoroughly entertaining experience and sometimes above that it will even also deliver something of intellectual value as well.
0: Yeah I I think you know we kind of have enough distance from this film now where we can look back at it and and uh, really assign this film to a different era in terms of um, action films, and especially Hollywood action films. I mean, I think we talked about this um, uh, in other settings, too. Just just the idea of a star-driven action vehicle, we just don't see that anymore, right? I mean, it used to be a very common thing. You used to have at least several films a year that were original stories or uh, that really pushed a, a movie star front and center, right? So, uh, you think about um, Harrison Ford with Air Force One, or of course the Die Hard movies, or you know any of these action films that just seem seem kind of antiquated now uh, compared to what we're seeing today. We, Everything is just franchise pictures these days, and everything's a sequel or a prequel, and um, it's too bad that we kind of lost uh, this uh, the the viability of these kinds of stories, you know, but looking at, at this film in particular, you know, why this film works within the context of action films, you know, in general, you know, I think it's a film that, uh, has really strong characters. And and for me, an action film that works always seems to have strong characters and, and the plot is secondary, you know, the plot is there. It's always going to be fairly ludicrous or over the top, or there's going to be potholes, But yeah, you're looking for good character, you're looking for well-executed action, you're looking for action that, um, you know, it has to be grounded in reality in some way, but you're expecting uh, things to be amplified, you're expecting excess, especially in a movie like this, and a lot of people are are critical of Michael Bay in general, but you know, this is, I think, uh, a quintessential example of what an action film can be, uh other strong films from period. You know, I think of speed. Uh, I think of, uh, a lot of James Cameron's films, you know, these are films that were, uh, there's a real passion and vision behind them. You know, people are quick to dismiss action movies. And I, I do think that, uh, like you said, they shouldn't be dismissed. They, there's a lot to respect when it's done well. And, and, uh, I think the rock is one of them.
1: Um, Action movies aren't easy to make. I think people assume because it doesn't have necessarily a a particularly dense thematic undercurrent in its script that therefore, oh, anybody can do this. But to do an action film well actually takes an incredible amount of skill. And to find a way to make it actually work for an audience is also difficult. And that's something that a screenplay really does have to make work. Your point's well taken about this sense of it's all – going to be in a certain sense over the top right? I mean most people's lives will never have any sort of big massive terrorist attack or bank uh, robbery or car chase this isn't what people experience in day to day life so action movies are uh, by their very nature by their very concept going to be somewhat unrealistic but maybe one way to look at it is the, the good action film will be uh, kind of almost a hyper realism uh, it's not that it's completely ungrounded, but it's obviously by its very nature going to be something you and I, as average person, are never going to experience. And so you find a sort of relatability through the actors, through the characters. I think you're right that that's absolutely got to be essential. If I don't like my characters, if I can't relate to them and their predicament, then all the action means nothing to me. Um, and then you have to somehow make me think that what they're going through is real for them. And it may not be real for me, may not be something I would ever experience, but I can by uh, as an audience member associating with the protagonist, I can then from that make myself sort of a a surrogate uh, so that what's happening to the protagonist is happening to me and thus it becomes believable, relatable to me. Uh, So I think you're very much on the point about the importance of good characters for a successful action film and that the screenwriting to create a believable character and the performance even to create a believable character in such an unbelievable situation, uh, it takes a certain kind of talent, a certain kind of insight that is not something to mock because a lot of people don't do it. Well, we see plenty of bad examples of action movies. Uh, so, so when it's done well, it means that there's actual real talent and thought that went into it.
0: Yeah. I think people really do take it for granted that it's, um, something that's just not easy to make or easy to do well. Uh, so I, I mean, let's look at the rock more specifically, just, um, what is it about this film that, that does work? I mean, I, I do think that, um, yeah, the characters are definitely there. Um, you know, Nicolas Cage is very likable. Uh, he, at this point hadn't really fallen off into the, the abyss of of B movies that he's in now. I'm not I'm not quite sure what he's doing with his career. It seems like he has a lot of bills to pay or something. Because I think back
1: taxes <laughs> or something. Who knows?
0: I don't know. It's it's very strange. He he's just he shows up in like two dozen films a year that you never see or even hear about, uh, and then he'll occasionally do something like Mandy, uh, where he tries to find an auteur to maybe keep his name legitimate or something, but. It seems like Bruce Willis is doing a lot of that now, too. It's it, uh, I'm not quite sure what's going on there. But uh, here he's kind of more in his prime, I guess, where I think he was probably seen as more... Um, I, I, I hesitate to use the word legitimate, I guess, but <laughs> at least uh, just a bigger name in Hollywood.
1: Mainstream, bankable, yeah, mainst- right? Yeah,
0: exactly. Um, and his personality really fits, uh, the character very well. And, uh, he's kind of got those quirks that, that flesh out the, um, the character of, of Stanley Goodspeed. And then you, of course you have Sean Connery. And in, in many ways, this is almost like Connery's, uh, version of, of Unforgiven in some ways, because, uh, of course he was James Bond for many years and, I I wonder if that's what attracted him to this role. And I I think he had a a producing credit on this film as well. You know, it's kind of an interesting uh, flip side to his his depiction of James Bond. So former British agent, rotting in prison. Uh, So kind of his opportunity to put a new spin on on a character that that he is known for. Uh, And then, of course, you have a lot of great supporting actors here you've got philip baker hall um you've got michael bean of course who is a staple with um with james cameron so there's a lot to enjoy here in, in terms of the acting and the characters um any any thoughts there nate
1: with regard to that question about why does the rock work why is this a good action film I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, there's, it's, it's certainly extremely well made. I think a lot of it has to do with the characters and the casting. Uh, you mentioned Nicolas Cage and Sean Connery. Certainly both of them are very likable in this movie. Uh, Sean Connery is just maybe the best example of screen presence in the history of movies. I mean, he's just as watchable. You put him on a screen, you want to watch what he's going to do. And it certainly bring to that then the... The reputation he has as having been James Bond and many other, you know, prominent roles in movies over the years, uh, you're going to be just drawn to it. And certainly, when this movie came out in 1996, uh, it had that appeal to it. Nicolas Cage was just coming off of leaving Las Vegas, right? So he won the Oscar and was, you know, a big name. Uh, I don't know if he had really done action movies prior to this, so it was maybe kind of him venturing into a new territory for himself. Uh, but he brings to it his own bizarre acting instincts uh, i think that's a good way to describe nicholas cage as an actor he has bizarre acting instincts and oftentimes they look absurd and they don't work but in certain instances they really do come together nicely and they do here the way he creates stanley goodspeed as our as our everyman uh is quite exciting because he is an everyman but he's also a quirky, right? So he's he's somehow like he's relatable. You can understand his predicament. You feel for him. Uh, but I think really a big part of why this movie works is really actually in Ed Harris as General Hummel, right? The 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 villain who has taken over Alcatraz is holding these people hostage and is threatening to kill the whole city of San Francisco uh, unless you have uh, reparations given for those soldiers who died under his command in secret missions in Southeast Asia, right? And he creates a character that's threatening. You believe he could do this, uh, but he's also got a kind of mad motive that you can resonate with and you can take seriously. And the movie takes him as a character seriously. He's rational. He's likable. You could tell he's not just gung-ho, crazy, I want to kill people. He would rather not do this, but he's got a motive that makes sense to him. And because it makes sense to him, it becomes all the more dangerous and thus the threat becomes real. And then that makes us care for the protagonists that, ooh, they could actually maybe be in danger. Uh, and that's, I think, where you have a good drama at the heart of this particular work. So I think a lot of it comes to that, that, three, that trio of Connery, Cage and Harris, their characters, their casting as uh, a major part of why this is a success.
0: Yeah, I I would agree. I mean, it's, it's a very strong cast. Um, and it's just a fun movie, you know, it it has great momentum to it. Um, it's, you know, it has a sense of self-awareness. I think it has a sense of knowing that it is over the top and silly at times, but it strikes that balance of, of levity and, and drama and, I that's not an easy thing to achieve. I mean, like we were talking about uh, the difficulty in executing action. Well, I think is really taken for granted by a lot of people. And, and you look at tone in action films too, and that's not an easy thing to accomplish. You know, it's very easy, I think to go too far one way or the other. And, and I suppose some of that comes to ultimately editing. Uh, but, you know, I, I think it's worth pointing out, um, you know, Michael Bay's contributions here. Uh, again, Michael Bay is frequently kind of the whipping boy of the film community. And, and a lot of people think he personifies, you know, what's wrong with Hollywood and, and his, it is kind of too bad that his career has gone the way it's gone. I mean, I, I think at a certain point he just resigned himself to, you know, the labels that were being put on him and, and he got into the business of making Transformers movies. They were very successful. And I don't think he's very concerned about his reputation as an auteur or, you know, as a great director. I think he's more interested in, you know, the business side of things, but also just entertaining people. And, um, yeah, you know, looking at, at this work, uh, among his other films, you know, I think it's... You could say this is before he kind of went off the deep end in some ways. Uh, but a lot of the Bay trademarks are here. You know, he, I always find that in his movies. He's very occupied with making things that are very ordinary. You know, making him... Um, making him more sexy, I guess, is a term for it, right? <laughs> I mean, you look at the... Um, mission control in Armageddon where it's very slick and over the top where the real the real place is just kind of this musty old room full of computers uh he is an expert at making things very glossy and very slick and uh very uh very pretty up on the up on the big screen so uh I can't help but wonder if he's inspired by Sergio Leone a lot too, because there's a lot of like sweaty close-ups in this movie. <laughs> a lot of people are just sweating for no reason. <laughs> so I think about that person. On, I'm sure on, it's on... very hot
1: in that prison. I mean, it can't have good <laughs> air circulation, right? Uh, there
0: must have been, you know, several people on set with spray bottles at all times because there there's a lot of uh, a lot of beads of sweat going on, uh, but. I mean, those are all the little details that, that, that make this kind of heightened reality work. And, um I you know, you look at Armageddon, I mean, to me, that's that's another film. Of course, it's another film that's in the Criterion Collection, but that's another one that, you know, when it happens to be on TV, it's it's hard to stop watching. And, I mean, it, it, these films pull you in, and they're very effective at what they're trying to do. Um, They may induce, you know, ADHD, but they're... Um, they were successful for a reason, and I think it's because, you know, they, they are pretty well made. Granted, the style's not for everybody, but uh, yeah, it's very easy to dismiss these kinds of movies as disposable, which I, I guess, you know, they're, they're products, they're disposable to a degree like anything else. But uh, there was a lot of effort and, I think, talent that, that went into making them. So uh, any, any thoughts on Michael Bay in general and, and how he relates to this film or the other films he's done.
1: Uh, sure. I'll get back to that in a second, but it's not unrelated to the Michael Bay in himself, just as you were talking about this being from a different era, right? Uh, this is kind of a different era of action films. And um, as I think about that, I do just consider watching this movie 20 some years later, 22 years after it's come out now. Uh, this was the first R rated film I remember seeing in the theater And as I watched it at the time, I just thought it was great, right? And as you said, action movies of that era had that sense of levity. They had that ability to get that tone that it was serious, but it wasn't self-important. And you don't seem to have that now. A lot of movies take themselves too seriously. They're too uh, aware of themselves as trying to say something. You look at the Jason Bourne movies. uh, Those really think very highly of themselves. Uh, as counter-programming, so to speak. You know, they're expertly made, there's there's plenty of things to admire in them, but there is, I think, a tone that just is a little too serious for what it is. And then you look at this film, which isn't going over the top in the comedy, but has comic relief, has one-liners, uh, but never in a way that undercuts the actual threat uh, of the scenario, right? It doesn't make it seem like this is all a goof. It seems like, no, this is real. And those little flourishes that you talk about, those directorial touches like having the sweat. I mean that just gets you okay, people sweat when they're anxious, when they're working hard, right? So that little directorial detail tells you this is serious to these characters, right? Uh if you had them all just looking perfectly made up, then it would look like it's not serious. It looks like they're just on a set. So I think those kinds of things are really smart. And as far as another era, right, if you watch this, you know, back in the, when this came out, Michael Bay was an up-and-comer, right? He, he was, I think, just had done Bad Boys before this as a feature film. I don't know if he'd done any other feature films before this, but made a big break for himself with music videos and also with some commercials, uh, then moved into feature filmmaking. And you can see that influence in him in this, you know, uh, how you have to do a lot of editing, very short cuts, uh you know from one shot to the next, you know, just very fat, rapid, lots of camera movement, and that would be something that would come from his background with music videos, with uh with commercials, uh, but at the same time a sense of how things work and flow as a structure. And you know it's still a pretty long movie. It's 136 minutes, but considering where his movies have gone now, where they're getting close to three hours to watch robots beat each other up. You kind of go, boy, this seems very restrained, uh, which was not the thought I think people would have had 22 years ago. Uh, So it is interesting to see it now looking back at where Michael Bay's career went, because you could see clearly he is a talented man. He does understand the camera. He understands editing. He understands sound. Uh, He can get all that stuff right, but... Whether it's because the technology kept advancing, so you could do these elaborate shots that you maybe couldn't back when you had to be a little more grounded. Uh, whether it's because his budgets started ballooning, you know, because this is that kind of casualty of modern filmmaking, you know, these middle budget movies like The Rock, which have enough star power, enough budgetary power to make something pretty impressive, but aren't going to also be so massive that you have to have a built in international audience to make your money back, right? Uh, whereas now you have to do a Transformers sequel because you need to know that when you spend $400 million to make a movie, you're going to somehow make a billion dollars in the box office receipts. So you have to do these franchises. You have to not sell the actor. You have to sell the the name of the story, the name of the character. Uh, so I think you look back and go, this is just a, a neat little film from before all that stuff really took off. Uh, and the the franchising of cinema really began to take hold within the decade right you know i 'd say by two thousand six it really started to kind of be prevalent uh, and then of course now today it 's pretty much all that you have for yeah. major entertainment action types, kinds of movies so I look at this as being a pretty solid example of uh, of a talented director at the beginning of his career uh who sadly. Then wound up getting sucked into that money making machine, and people knew he could deliver the technical goods, and so therefore just keep cranking those out. And that's what he does now.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's too bad. I mean, I, even Pearl Harbor, you know, a lot of people knock that movie too. I think that has its. I like it. And, it's a
1: guilty pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> Edit that out, it's, though. I don't want people knowing that. I, I don't want that out there. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, I mean, there's a film that was clearly try to be the new Titanic, and um, yeah, I, there's there's a lot to I think admire in in, in his skill and um, who who shot The Rock was it was that John Schwartzman? Did
1: yep, he, John Schwartzman. I okay,
0: yeah. So obviously, he, I Michael mean,
1: Bay has a lot of talent. I mean, he does have a yeah. lot of talent. He's not a thinker. I mean, if you can't because obviously he he did want to be the next James Cameron right? And Pearl Harbor, you mentioned, is clearly trying to be Titanic. He really yeah. did want to go down that road. He's never going to be James Cameron because he doesn't have as much interest in ideas. He has a lot mm-hmm. of interest in hardware, right? That's why you have so many pictures of or shots of uh, helicopters flying because that's yeah. what he likes. He's interested in in mechanics and he's great at creating those mechanics. His movies are very watchable even if they're insufferable. At the same time, you kind of do get sucked in. Like you said, you kind of watch it, even if you watch it like it's a train wreck, you kind of have to watch it still.
0: Yeah. <laughs> On that note, yeah. <laughs> That's probably a good uh, good way to summarize it. Um, well, let's talk about, you know, visual effects too in, in action films in general and the use of visual effects. And, you know, I think here here's a time where digital effects were, were starting to become uh, more frequent. I mean, of course, this is... Uh, a few years after Jurassic Park. So there's definitely some use of of digital effects in this film, but they're, they're pretty sparingly used. And I think when they're used, um, they're used well, Uh, but there's quite a few practical effects in this film as well. Um, You know, of course there's always that debate of uh, practical effects versus digital effects. And, you know, this film kind of comes out of that era of uh, there's still limitations on digital effects and, and i i mean i i still i still think there's limitations now but directors use it as though there are no limitations uh but you know from a visual standpoint or visual effects standpoint you know it's, uh, there's really nothing to complain about here i don't think uh the the criterion disc has some supplements on on some of the visual effects and some pretty interesting things there I, some of the underwater scenes they used you know um scale models and kind of robotic figures, things like that, that you don't see much of anymore. And it's very convincing. And I was surprised uh, to learn about some of the techniques that used. Um, so yeah, these days we're not, we're not really seeing that, that blend as much. Uh, I, I do think there's an effort to go back to that, you know, um, uh, Blade Runner 2049 had quite a bit of uh, model work in it, even though, I think a lot of it was maybe lost on the audience. You know, I think people assume that it's CG and it's certainly at least enhanced with CG or or um, or the scale is made larger with CG Yeah, you know, in terms of the scale of what you're seeing. But um, hopefully we'll continue to kind of have a blend of those two types of visual effects because I think that's where films can really hit the hit the sweet spot when it comes to that kind of work and it would be a shame if all the model makers and those kinds of artisans out there are are not used anymore uh because there, there's some real amazing things that can be accomplished um you know, i mean you look at the star wars films of course and the the matte paintings and, and a lot of the, the interesting things that were used then it's It'd be nice to see some of those techniques come back, but um, any thoughts on the visual effects in this
1: film? There's the old saying, the best special effect is the one you don't know is a special effect. Yeah. And I think that's the way you should approach it. Whatever the means of getting the special effect, whether it's through computer graphic or through model work, through some sort of forced perspective, uh, it's it's fine, but just... If I don't notice it, that's really when you've done your job very well, right? And The Rock, certainly, as you said, it does have some of that digital creeping in, the The start of that. Uh, I don't use creeping in there as a condescending term. I don't necessarily think that computer graphic imaging is somehow uh, antithetical to real cinema uh, because I think it's certainly a tool that can be used poorly or used well as, as any other tool can be used. Um, I think this particular film uh, is, is particularly great. in the fact that as I watch it, I don't ever think about the special effects in it. Uh, You just really do think it's all happening more or less practically. I mean, I do understand those, those bombers at the end are not actually bombing Alcatraz. I, I know that, but I'm not sitting around wondering, Oh, was that a model? Was that, some computer graphic enhancement was that you know i I don't think about that because i'm just in the story and that means the special effects are not calling attention to themselves which is exactly what you want from them uh and i think you're right as you learn about what they did you know the underwater sequence how that oh that wasn't just guys underwater it's what i thought it was when i was watching it you go well that's pretty impressive right that means they really did their job well and i i guess the advantage of having films from this era as opposed to today, is that because you did have certain technological limitations, it then did make the film more grounded because you couldn't just have guys flipping and flopping all over the place, falling 500 feet and then get them back up because you couldn't do it digitally and make it look realistic. And so therefore, you had to have stuntmen, right? And then they would come in and they'd have to fall and thus you saw a real body falling and you kind of believed, oh yeah, that's what happens when people fall, right? So there's a weight to it. And so there's an advantage, I think, uh, that it, the limitation, the technical limitation, has on the overall impact of creating that believability, like we said. An action film has to be believable. Uh, it has to have some kind of grounding. Even though we know it's an absurd story that's not going to happen in real life, uh, we nonetheless have to believe within the world of the movie itself. And when you stop respecting something as simple as the laws of gravity... Uh, or people don't break bones when they fall hundreds of feet, that all of a sudden I don't really find anything threatening. But because this has enough practical requirements until they executed it, I then find it more believable and thus more threatening and then as an audience member and more engaged. So that's kind of my just general thought about special effects and particularly the Rock's use of them uh, is that they do a great job of the fact that as I watch it, I don't really even think about it.
0: Yeah, it's... um... Well, I I think people are becoming more savvy to all the techniques out there now, and and you know visual effects just don't really impress people as much anymore. So
1: when we were growing up, I remember you'd hear all the time, "Oh, you got to go see that movie. The special effects are amazing!" Right? Yeah. And gosh, I maybe since Lord of the Rings, I don't know. That's the last time I seem to remember people talking about that. Oh, you got to see it. The special effects are amazing. It's nobody seems to care about them anymore, right?
0: Yeah, they don't, and yeah, well, hopefully that creates an effort back toward good storytelling, and it just doesn't get people to uh, show up at the theater anymore. Um, I mean, we really, really are at the point now where if you imagine it, it can be put on screen through some technique, and that's not always a good thing, you know. It's, uh, I think the the Star Wars prequels. kind of the beginning of that where there was a real effort to um, push the CG to its limit at that time and it really shows so it's um, yeah hopefully there's going to be more balance when it comes to that kind of work in the future and I feel like that is happening Uh, we just need less superhero movies I think that's that's the next phase of this (laughs) Yeah, the, I'll the, oh, go ahead
1: <laughs> no it's just not, I think I think it's just action movies in general special effects in general go right now it, people put too much time into that and you know it's just it takes a, a whole army to make those things happen right so I understand yeah. you have to put a lot of time into it but if you didn't actually get a good script in the first place it doesn't matter
0: yeah exactly I think we should mention the the music in this film too. Hans Zimmer uh, did the music, of course, and and this was kind of with
1: Nick Glennie Smith.
0: Oh, was it? It was Nick Glennie. Oh, it wasn't Hans Zimmer?
1: No, it was both of them.
0: Oh, that's right. Okay,
1: yep.
0: you're right. You're right. Sorry, I forgot about Nick Glennie Smith. Uh, yeah, so I kind of at the height of you know his relationship, I think, with Bruckheimer or. Uh, there's kind of this era with with Crimson Tide and and some of these other films where Zimmer had the had a very specific sound and he was paired up with these very specific kinds of action films. So uh, the music's very effective; it, it gets the blood pumping.
1: Uh, it's oh, it's very... great to work out to if you, if you have the <laughs> CD, throw it on, and yeah. work, you're, you're going to start pumping iron and you're going to really hit the gym. <laughs> it just it does, it gets you moving.
0: Hans Zimmer's music does that in general. I mean, his uh uh Batman scores can do that too for sure. But it's very effective. I mean, I think it's a it's a very listenable score and a very memorable theme. Um so I I think that's that's definitely
1: worth mentioning too. Well, I think the sound and the sound work in this film is is impressive all around, right? Yeah. Uh, so not just the score, but the sound effects the sound mixing, all of that come together very nicely. Um, you know, you really feel the rev of the engines in that car chase through San Francisco. Wow. You get the sense of uh, the inner workings of the uh, – underneath Alcatraz as they're crawling through all these mines. It, it's it's kind of funny because I wouldn't expect Alcatraz to have this elaborate labyrinth of uh, under, underground uh, uh, train yeah, jets. Yeah, it's pretty
0: silly. It somehow
1: does. <laughs> Uh, but you just—it sounds so interesting as you go in there, and the the score then highlights and enhances that, right? So I mean, it is a very effective score. It really gets that that thrust uh, that you want in it uh, because you're you're wanting to take people on a ride, and the score is very effective in how it does that for this movie. So it's a great score. Uh, obviously, it is of its era. I don't think you'd ever make a score like this today, uh, but it was of that era where Hans Zimmer was doing these scores. Uh, that were very impressive for the movies mm-hmm. they were being made with.
0: Well, any any further thoughts on, on this film in general before we kind of get into um, the the Criterion connection?
1: Well, I have a couple, actually. Uh, one is just to talk about it as far as, obviously, the producing team, Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer, right? yeah. uh, who started out, I maybe they technically started in the 70s, but really came to their own in the 80s. With stuff like Beverly Hills Cop, Top Gun, and then you know this partnering this uh, partner relationship they had up until this movie, Don Simpson died during it. I think it was a heart attack from a drug overdose or something like that.
0: Yeah, um, I think that's right.
1: They were they were a major major producing team, and these kinds of movies that they churned out uh, were the blockbuster entertainment kind of movie, right? So they really did introduce a certain era. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, or certain, not era, but a certain uh, style, a certain packaging uh, of how you produce, market, and sell a movie and I think that is noteworthy in terms of just looking at The Rock as being a part of that phenomenon of this team, right, of Bruckheimer and Simpson. Uh, they were incredibly successful producers. Bruckheimer obviously continued on after Simpson's death and had great success with uh, Pirates of the Caribbean and other movies as well. Uh, but you know, this is just a really impressively produced movie. Uh, you, you get the feel that the money is on the screen and that this has a lot of uh attention on it and so i think you got to just recognize what they did as producers of these kinds of high concept movies uh and then i guess maybe that's my other thought is that uh it's a high concept film right it's you know, very simple premise x general is going to kidnap people and hold them for ransom on alcatraz and elite team needs to go in and needs to take them down right very simple concept and they don't you know get bogged down with a whole bunch of other subplots there's enough going on you have the FBI director and other bureaucrats back on the mainland you have the SEAL team that goes in you know and what a bold move it was to kill them all off right you kind of cast that very well Michael Bean taking that lead role there uh, as the as the captain for that team, and you know they all get killed, and you kind of oh gosh, you know where's this going to go? Uh, you really, I mean, I think it's over a half hour before you even introduce Sean Connery into this st- film. So it's just it's very well executed on that conceptual level. I mean, they just yeah. they knew what they're doing. They really hit it, and uh, that's just impressive to see. Um, and then I guess the other thing is just the fact that it's an R rated movie. Uh, I, wish more, I wish more movies were rated R. I'm sick of these PG-13 movies uh, because things mean more when you can actually show, show blood, when you can actually make the threat of violence actually a threat, right? When it's killing a bunch of CG armies, it's not threatening. But when you have yeah. a couple of people that get killed, uh, your characters have some squibs in them, and there's actual blood, I see that, and I go, oh, okay, this, these people mean business. And so I think the fact that it's an R-rated film is also something that's worth noting, and I wish we had more R-rated action movies now.
0: I agree. I mean, we just don't get that much. Um, occasionally one will pop up, and and it may flop, but it may do very well. And then if it does well, then we maybe we'll get a little run of R-rated films. And then the, some of those will fail, and then they go away again. So it's all about following the money, you know. Right. I guess Deadpool is kind of the last blip on their radar when it came to that. Well, um,
1: Logan would be another one, right? As far as the, yeah, yeah, it's the superhero film, right? I mean, that's that's clearly something different uh, because it is. And again, you can have good PG thirteen films, but there's something different when I can do an R rated film that I edit it differently because. You kind of edit without thinking about, oh, how do I appeal to a 12 year old, right? I can hold shots a little differently. I can stage a scene a little differently. Whereas Mm -hmm. if I'm making a PG 13, I got to go, okay, that's my audience. And so now I got to figure out what they're interested in. And you can't necessarily make as much of an adult film uh, as you would if you did an R rated film.
0: Yeah. Well, let's uh, get into the. The elephant in the room when it comes to The Rock. Uh, of course, this podcast is called The Criterion Chat, so we're talking about the Criterion Collection, and The Rock is indeed in the Criterion Collection. Um, it's a point of controversy for a lot of people. I think Armageddon's probably a bigger point of controversy, uh, but here it is. And uh, Just talking about the release itself, it's a double-disc DVD uh, looking at Criterion's website, it's not available for sale from Criterion. I don't, I don't think it's out of print, but maybe they, they must be op- embarrassed.
1: <laughs> there's, there's some snobs at the Criterion collection going, "Oh, just uh, put that on Amazon. Don't don't have anything directly to do with it, right?" <laughs>
0: uh, but yeah, it's not available, which is kind of weird. Um, So the, uh, the disc, you know, it's a nice set as there's commentary, uh, with Michael Bay and, and Bruckheimer and Nicholas Cage, Ned Harris, and one of the technical advisors. Um, there's some interviews, of course, there's some features on the, uh, visual effects and, oh, that was my son in the background. If anybody heard that, uh, (laughs) uh, There's some outtakes, uh, as well. And, um, yeah, it's a nice set. It's, I kind of miss the days of those double disc DVDs. Those always seem to be kind of a special thing when those came out and, uh, it's a nice minimalist sort of cover as well. And, uh, any thoughts on the release itself, Nate?
1: I love the cover, uh, that very minimalist. It's, it's so stark, it's a, yeah. It's like the anti-Michael Bay cover. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you think about it now, um, but no, it's a it's a good disc. Uh, I obviously it's a DVD, so you know picture quality, all that stuff's a little uh, less than what you would expect now. But I I think it actually holds up very well. Watching it again in preparation for this podcast, I, I wasn't at all put out by the the quality of the image or the sound. Uh, watching it still holds up very well as a, as a release from 2001. I think is when this disc came out. Um yeah. and the interviews, uh, you know, the I, I enjoyed seeing the the different uh, information with regard to the uh, Navy SEALs that do the training for gunfire, gunplay, all that stuff. Great, right? it's really really cool uh, to see just how they do their training, how that stuff's supposed to look in real life. So I really appreciate that, and I love the the audio commentary from this because it was made in that era where people were still honest in audio commentaries and they said things like ed harris talking about the fact that michael Bay's just kind of a jerk he's like i don't understand why he wants to be like jim cameron jim cameron's an asshole right it's it just <laughs> people people just were saying whatever they thought back then and then now it's all so very carefully controlled by publicists and lawyers and you know it's just kind of a fun thing to go back and listen to some of those early dvd commentaries before they really became a thing um, yeah. So, yeah, it's a good release. I like it.
0: Yeah, definitely worth getting if, if you're a fan of the film. I mean, it's, um, it's a handsome set. So, um, yeah. Well, we can uh, address the final question. So does The Rock belong in the Criterion collection? Is this a source of eternal embarrassment for Criterion and its fans?
1: I don't Asking think so. I don't think it's an embarrassment. I think it belongs there. I think that it's fine to have the rock in there. Again, I think if the Criterion Collection is about films, you can't pretend this genre is not a part of cinema. It might not be your personal cup of tea. You might not really like it. You might not think it's as important as genre noir, but it doesn't matter. It's a part of cinema. If you're trying to document cinema and collect what's important and makes a difference in cinema, both from the classic as well as contemporary, you got to consider the action film as part of it. This is, I think, a truly exemplary example of the work of action films. I I don't think that you can look at this as anything less than a stellar first-rate action film. Uh, I think it is very much... uh, the highlight of Michael Bay's career. And you can't deny that he's an important filmmaker. I think you could say that this is also, uh, if you're looking at at a entire decade of how an era and how action films are made, this is one of the very best examples of it. So you have to put it in there. I think it absolutely belongs in there.
0: I, I agree. Action films can't be ignored criterion. You know, that's, it's a, a series of important films, i do think that this is an important action film i mean it's it's quality uh it it marks an era of um of quality action and it's it's nice to see it included in the criterion collection i i I think criterion and his followers uh, they tend to uh turn their nose up at things sometimes um i should say it's followers not criterion itself cuz they obviously included this in their in the collection though i do wonder if they would be willing to to include any similar films uh, from here on out
1: i would i would suppose but, not i think i think they yeah. have gone down a certain road of cultivating a tour right obscure yeah. little foreign films or right yeah, but
0: and that's fine you know i one could say that this was a, a business decision to acquire this film you know sales of this can bankroll uh, releases that may not sell as well uh but you know criterion is is a business and they're they are a company they they want to mm-hmm. stay solvent so uh i don't have a problem with with a release like this and and this one's done well so i think people need to uh accept its inclusion and and enjoy it for what it is well thanks for listening to our discussion on Michael Bay's The Rock and our next film will be Paul Thomas Anderson's Punch Drunk Love which will be released the first Friday in November very shortly after this podcast so stay tuned thanks again for listening and have a good night